Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to welcome you to episode 18 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. In today's episode, we're going to look at an analysis that compares four of the various moving systems models with one another. This is actually part two of a two-part presentation that I gave this past April at the NPA AAAS conference at the University of New Mexico. So in the first first uh, presentation, which was given as episode 16 of the podcast series, we looked at some of the conceptual foundations uh, that go into each of the moving systems models. Today, we're going to look at the relationship of the theories to one another, and we're also going to look at two experiments uh, and the experimental evidence for the models. So we're going to begin by showing how each of the models are related to one another. Now there is a gentleman who's part of the NPA uh, group, a gentleman whose first name is Neil, and one of the things that he is a strong proponent on, and something that I agree very adamantly about, is it's very important for us to document and define what our assumptions are. Because without those assumptions, it's really hard to, to understand if people are agreeing or disagreeing, or to understand what the differences and similarities are. So today's episode is really about understanding the assumptions that go into the models and how they relate to each other. So we're going to start with a blank slate and we're going to build our assumption layers one at a time until we have the resulting models and how, how they interact. So the first layer of assumptions, um, which we'll call layer one, is has to do with the speed of light. So layer 1a is the assumption that the speed of light is constant, or at least constant for a certain domain. Uh, layer 1b is the opposite of that, that the, the speed of light can vary. So right now we're going to look at at a assumption set that is in layer 1a. Um, now we're going to build on top of that. We're going to have a layer 2. We're not going to introduce layer 2 yet. We're going to come back to that. Um, but let's look at layer 3. There, there is an assumption set in layer 3, and I've put layer 3b up here, and that is that there is an ether. So right now we've built an ether on top of a constant speed of light. Now based on this, this is a model that was originally proposed by Frenet. Um, two gentlemen, Michelson and Morley, came out and they decided, well, let's see if we can test this set of assumptions, and we're going to do an experiment. So uh, Michelson and Morley... Uh, came out and they decided to do what's called the Michelson and Morley interferometer experiment. For this experiment, they created an expected result. They went out and found some, conducted their experiment and got some actual data. They created an analytical model, ran the, the data through that analytical model, compared that to the actual result, and they found that they expected 30 kilometers per second as their expected result their analysis of their data indicated to them that they had found an actual result of about 5 to 7 kilometers per second, which represents an error of about 22 to 24 kilometers per second. Pretty big error. So based on that, they were able to conclude that th this set of assumptions just doesn't make sense together. So the ether-based model on top of the constant um, speed of light, and also layer 2a, which we'll talk about uh, later on, um, but basically those two explicit assumptions just didn't work. So Lorenz came along and basically said, 
we need to explain the result, uh, the negative result of the Michelson-Morley experiment. And this is going to require um, a new hypothesis. In effect, a new hypothesis means that he's changing one of our core assumptions. So he introduces layer 3A. Uh, now, I have lumped him into, I've, I've labeled layer 3A as a non-ether-based assumption set. Uh, to be fair, I believe that Lorenz actually had come up with a modified ether-based model. However, since he aligns very closely with Einstein in later life, and Einstein is a non-ether-based model, I've gone ahead and lumped the two of those together. Uh, there is another way that we could label layer 3a, and it has to do with, with the normalization step that's performed mathematically. So let's go ahead and show Einstein's picture on, on here as well. And basically you can see that both Einstein and Lorenz basically change the expected result of the Michelson-Morley experiment. That's why we have that circle in gray. They are now expecting zero. Um, and then you can see that I have in green there that their conclusion is that it supports the model. It supports it because they're five to seven kilometers per hour per hour is often looked at as experimental error. So we'll look at that um, later on here in the presentation. Now some people feel that Einstein's theory is, is incorrect and when they challenge it, they often challenge it in this top half of the page. So they either come up with alternative constant speed of light models, so they continue to be non-ether-based models, uh, so they're layer 3a on top of layer 1a, or we have some folks who look at variable speed of light models, so they're on layer 1b. Now again, we haven't introduced what layer 2a and 2b mean yet, so we'll talk about that later, but for now, this just shows you that when people say that they're disagreeing with, with Einstein's theory and they come up with an alternative theory, these have traditionally been the two camps where those theories uh, typically fall. So let's look again at what Lorenz says about the Michelson-Morley experiment. He says that in order to explain the negative result, we need to look at a new hypothesis every time new information is brought into the picture. The new information I believe we've introduced through the course of this podcast series uh, re requires us to relook at Michelson-Morley and see if there is another way of explaining it. Um, so if you have not had a chance to review episode 11 of the Relativity Challenge um, podcast series, uh, please take a look because that's where we look at the Michelson-Morley experiment in a little bit more detail. So let's go ahead and now talk about layers 2a and 2b and some of our assumptions. Again, through the podcast series, you can see some of the things that we've changed. Um, we've talked about two types of coordinate systems instead of one. We've introduced the concepts of bidirectional wavelength instead of things just being unidirectional. And we've also recognized the fact that we need to think in relative terms and also average the frequencies. So once we do that, that becomes a net and a set of assumptions that we can now make explicit and we can talk about them because those are uh, the implicit foundational assumptions I've put in the top left hand corner those have always been there but now we're making them explicit and now we have the the uh, assumptions in the lower right hand corner about layer 2b this is important because now it gives us an opportunity 
to relook at the Michelson-Morley experiment, which we will do, and we'll see here that um, the thing that's changed, as and as you will recall from from episode eleven, is that we've changed the analytical model. So we don't change their expected results. In fact, we don't look at we don't change their actual data. We look at the uh, changing their analytical model, and what do we find? We find that we still had an expected result of 30 kilometers per second. They found 32 kilometers per second or an error of about two kilometers per second. So out of all of the models, whether you look at what Michelson Morley originally did, you look at Einstein and Lorenz, or you look at the latest revision, this has the less amount of error, least amount of error between the actual and the expected result. Now, one thing that's really nice about this is that we can look at Miller's repeat 1933 experiment where he set out to have a more accurate experiment. Now in 1933, he analyzed it the exact same way that Michelson and Morley did. He got a little closer to 30 kilometers per second, but um, to be honest, he was still way out of the ballpark. Um, what we found here that by analyzing it in the exact same way with our revised analysis, he basically hit the, the expected result and the actual result right on the money. So this is really important, not only for the amount of accuracy, but it also gives us experimental convergence. We have two experiments that give us the same result. Now, one thing I should add here is that with this analysis, and I think this is very important, it actually removes Lorenz's motivation for creating that uh, the assumptions that go into layer 3a. So just to summarize a couple of things here that I think are important is now we can combine layer 3b with layer 2b and layer 1a and come up with an ether-based model that are based on the same foundational equations. And it's, a, it's basically a wavelength-based model or frequency-based model. Now when we look at uh, the non-ether-based model, again, layer 3a with layer 2a, and layer 1a, so again, you build your assumptions, you have a non-ether-based model that has the normalization step performed and uses uh, wavelength. So one thing I want to mention about the normalization step, the multiplication by uh, the square root of 1 minus v squared over c squared, this is a very important mathematical step because both Einstein and Lorenz perform this multiplication in their derivations, and neither one of them explains it. The way that they do this is they both uh, either explicitly or implicitly introduce a beta squared term, and then they only use beta. So in effect, they've, they've lost one of the betas. And so uh, I've pointed that out in episode 17. It is something to watch for, and it is that is the constant uh, thing that happens in mathematically between uh, Lorenz and Einstein, and many of the alternative uh, constant speed of light models that are out there. So just something to be aware of because I think that, that is a key distinction between that class of models and some of the others that, that um, you'll see either I discuss or some of the variable speed of light models that are out there. Okay, so um, one thing we have to answer because again, Michelson and Morley, if you look at where they are, they are layer 3b, 2a, 1a, and if you look at my model, I'm layer 3b, 2b, 
1a. The key difference here, again, is that they're using the implicit foundational assumptions. I'm using the revised assumptions. There's also one additional thing that has to come into play here, uh, which is that when you use it mathematically, they, they use the full wavelength uh, in it. Again, they're not taking into account the bidirectional nature. I use half the wavelength that helps take that into account. Now we want to look at uh, some of the experimental evidence and support for the models. One of the things I want to talk about before we really dive into this is around experimental accuracy. I know I get a lot of emails from people indicating that you know linear accelerators today and most of the modern experiments are degree are, are accurate to a very high level of accuracy, a very high precision. Um, what these arguments often fail to look at is that there's a difference between the accuracy of your measured data, your actual data, and the accuracy of the algorithm that is used to interpret that data. So you can have highly accurate data, but if you analyze it one way versus another, you might get a different result. And that's the same thing that happens when you look at how Michelson and Morley uh, analyzes the data and they get a different result than me analyzing the exact same data with the exact same level of accuracy. So please make a distinction there. So with respect to Michelson and Morley, one of the things that's important if you accept that experiment is right off the bat you have to throw out the expected result. Michelson and Morley said 30, um, that you have to accept zero if you want to um, support a non-ether-based model. Number two, what, what they found in terms of actual results, you also have to throw out because if you're expecting zero, you can't get any value that's, that's greater than zero. So basically say, nope, this actual result is actually zero. Um, and, and that's because of experimental error. And now, once you say it's experimental error, you've basically said, you don't agree with with the actual with the quality of the actual data. So for someone who's a strong supporter of Michelson and Morley supporting special relativity, basically we're saying we don't agree with Michelson and Morley's expected result. We don't agree with their data. We don't agree with their with their final result. The only thing that we agree with is that they they have a set of equations that we buy into, um, which I think is somewhat interesting because it basically negate the entire experiment. So one of the things I want to show uh, now, and this is a very important slide about the Michelson-Morley experiment, is that it clearly shows that 30 is not a possible answer um, using their analytical model. So the experiment did not support the model by Frenet. However, a lot of people interpret that to mean that zero is the answer. So, and they say experimental error aside, you know, zero, it supports relativity. Well, that band of green in the middle accounts for exper experimental error. So had the expected result been anywhere between about 6 kilometers per second and 10 kilometers per second, we could say, e even though there's error, this experiment supported. Zero is outside of that band of green. So even when you consider experimental error, zero is not supported. Michelson and Morley does not support special relativity as it exists today. So let's go back and let's uh, revisit how how uh, my my analysis of the Michelson-Morley 
model fits with the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. First off, we accept the expected result of 30 kilometers per second. There are reasons that that that, that particular set of numbers can make sense in an ether-based model. So we're, we'll go ahead and keep that. that. That's what they originally had, so we'll use that. Two, we're going to accept their data. We're going to say it was good data. Yes, there is experimental error in it, and that's going to be accounted for statistically, but we're going to go ahead and accept that, that set of data. And we run it through our revised uh, analytical model, as we talked about in episode 11, and we come up with expected results. And again, in this case, we're going to accept those expected results as well and, and show that here, in this particular case, the band of green, uh, the, the expected result number of 30 kilometers per second falls within that band of green, which would suggest that the Michelson-Morley experiment actually does support the model, the ether-based model that was proposed by Frenet. Now, what's really exciting here again is that in 1933, Miller did a different experiment uh, same type of interferometer experiment, but he used a different frequency of light, different arm length, different locations, etc. He tried to make it much more accurate, and what we found is that he actually nailed it um, with a high degree of accuracy. The other thing that this does is it gives us experimental convergence between those two. It's nice when you have multiple experimenters coming up with the same answer. We now have that with this analysis, um, whereas we didn't have that before. So having said that, that's just one class of experiments. I'd like to look at another class of experiments, and this is the Ives-Stilwell atomic clock experiment. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. Um, basically, what we can look at is that um, the, the Einstein-based, relativity-based equations, we come up with a set of expected results. And in the middle, we have a band that tells us what the actual results are. And we can see what the variance between, what the difference is between the expected and actual results. And we can see that the Einstein base, the special relativity based equations produce really good results with re really small errors. What this means is that I still well and it seems to support the special relativity theory. Now, the question that we have is, is, does this mean that special relativity equations, are they the best equations in town? Are they the best game going? Well, they may have been, but what this slide also suggests is that the revised equations that are associated with the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems actually produce better predictions. So the error is virtually zero when you look at it. There is some amount of error, but to the degree of accuracy of the experiment, we can say that the error is actually zero. Now, one nice thing about this is this actually dispels one myth that is out there, and that is there is an assertion that the special relativity equations are the only set of equations that could predict the Ives-Stilwell atomic clock experiment. What we've now shown is that there's a second set of equations that can predict the results of this experiment and appear to do so with a higher degree of accuracy. Now, I want to show you this curve because this is a very important curve, and it shows that for the most part, when you look at the uh, Einstein-Lorentz equations, or if you looked at my revised equations, uh, the curves are extremely similar. So it's, it's going to be really hard to use 
an Ive Stilwell type of experiment to say that one of these models is invalid. In fact, they're both gonna be pretty much in the same ballpark. That's what this slide says. That's why it's so important for us to go back and look at something like the Michelson-Morley experiment because the Michelson-Morley experiment, one model expects zero kilometers per second, the other model expects 30 kilometers per second. You're not going to get uh, the same type of expected results in the various models. So that is one experiment that could knock one or the other model out and that's why that experiment is so important. This one is important because it does show the degrees of accuracy of the various models. So finally, I'd like to just wrap up some of the things that we've talked about um, today, and that is the model of complete and incomplete coordinate system seems to provide mathem better mathematical results and better being objectively defined as expected result minus actual result or the absolute value of that. Um, and the most important thing about that is that scientists and engineers should use and research those equations that produce the best results. So we need to get our beliefs out of the picture, whether we believe Einstein got it right or we believe Einstein got it wrong. To some extent, that's that's not as material as saying, well, which one is giving us the better result? Now let's understand why is that occurring? And then we can ask more questions beyond that. Uh, there are some discoveries that we've talked about through the course of the podcast series, so I just want to make sure that you understand a couple of them. Key discovery here, we now have an alternative. We have an ether-based model that is experimentally consistent. I don't believe we've had that uh, at our disposal before. Uh, we have, we've talked about bidirectional wavelength and frequency at length throughout the series, so I won't hit on that one uh, too much here. As we've talked about, by, by introducing that, sec, that new assumption layer, 2A and 2B, uh, it removes Lorenz's motivation for creating the non-ether-based model. And we've talked about at length other, uh, in other episodes the importance of, of making a distinction between lengths and points. So a couple of final things for the broader community. This is really... Um, the, the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems right now is, is a system, and it may be the only one right now, and that may change, of course, over time, uh, where Michelson and Morley give the exact same experimentally consistent result. And there is something to be said about experimental consistency. It gives us comfort that we probably are doing our analysis in the right way. Uh, number two, it gives meaning to some of the unexplained terms in, in Einstein's mathematics. Now, this is actually a carryover from, from the first half of the presentation, which is episode 16, where I talk about vx prime over c squared minus v squared. Uh, we give meaning to that particular um, uh, equation. This is an ether-based model that explains I still well, which we've talked about, um, and we've also talked about the bidirectional nature of, of the derivations. Now, where does this lead us? It leads us to some very interesting questions. Um, one that I have that I, I find completely fascinating is how how is it that the, the uh, Einstein-Lorenz equations and my uh, equations for complete and incomplete coordinate systems produce similar curves? Uh, to me, that's very interesting. They're different equations, but they do produce very similar curves. And I, that's something I, I just find fascinating. Um, I would look, like to look at some of the linear accelerator um, experiments and see how these revised equations 
uh, what type of predictions they make against what's actually measured. And then, of course, there's a whole host of, of other areas that might make for interesting research questions or, or continue things to look at. So to the extent that some of you are interested in, in doing additional research along these lines, there's a whole set of questions that I, I look forward to uh, either reading your results on or perhaps collaborating on or just exploring and discussing things about. So with that said, that brings us to the end of episode 18 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. I want to thank you today for joining me. Uh, please remember you can find all the material out there. Please feel free to contact me with uh, questions or suggestions. You'll find the website at www.RelativityChallenge.com. You can always email me at email at RelativityChallenge.com. And uh, I also encourage you to continue to invite your, your friends and colleagues to uh, re review and, and uh, visit the site. This episode today is copyright 2008 by Stephen Bryant and RelativityChallenge.com. I hope that you'll join me again next time. Until then, be well.